This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcbalone.org. Esther chapter 7. There is a commentator that I have read from in, uh, in several of his volumes. His name is Derek Prime. Derek Prime. And he writes concerning this chapter of Esther 7. He says, every day is like a fresh blank sheet of paper given us by God. And we can never tell what wonderful surprises he may choose to write upon it. So much can happen in just a few hours. Our lives may proceed at an ordinary pace with nothing of great importance appearing to happen. And then suddenly, without warning, dramatic and amazing events may crowd into the space of a single day. You know, wars have been launched and ended in a matter of a single day. Churches have formed and dissolved in a day. Lives and families have been ripped apart and joined together in a day. So much can happen. And it's in all of those changes that we navigate. And I believe that this quote was so appropriate And when I found, I was like, man, this kind of solidifies everything that we've been journeying thus far because we've been talking about how in life we may not always see God moving, yet he's moving all around us. And and, and as Prime wrote here, yes, our lives may proceed at an ordinary pace, but then suddenly God is moving. And and when we may not, you know, automatically attribute him or, or see what he is up to and We may not see the outcome, things of that nature, but that is ever the more reason why we as believers are required to be faithful. So lesson number nine is this. The Lord will always reward those who are faithful to him. Now that phrase came from my dad. Someone said recently, pastor, do you have a mama? (laughs) Well, I do. Uh, And she taught me so much, um, so many wonderful things. It just seems that as of late, I'm remembering more of my father's teaching coming to my memory than my mother. But my father gave me this statement, and it has always stuck with me. And I believe it is a good summation of what Esther is experiencing in in chapter 7 and summarily what we can experience in our lives. So let's begin. There are really just two movements of this chapter, verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 10. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 uh, and read through verse 6 and discuss it and then move from there. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Verse 3. And Queen, answer, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me, my wish, and my people from my request. Verse 4. Important verse here. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The, the pace of this narrative quickens as we approach the climax. You will notice as we begun in, in chapter 1, Things moved at a moderate to maybe slow pace. And then as we have moved in through this book, things are starting to move at a, at a rapid pace. In other words, things are unfolding and happening so that within just a few verses, you can have the span of a few days contained within. Uh, the, the, and he's doing this, the author is doing this without using a lot of superfluous details. Now, I want to suggest to you that... This is a a a a, a strong um, uh, a, a strong uh, um, that's the word I'm looking for a litmus test, as it were, to the validity of the scriptures. And let me explain to you why. How many of you have ever heard, "Brevity is the soul of wit"? Right? Brevity is the soul of wit. When I was writing my dissertation, my I would turn in a chapter and, or or turn in a paragraph that I had a question about, and he would say. You can say all of that in one sentence. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Rewrite it. Make it simpler. Condense it. You've said way too much. You've used too many words. The scriptures are very much like that. All throughout the word of God, it gives you the necessary details. It moves you through a course of events very rapidly without wasting your time, but also providing all of the information necessary. Why do I bring that up? Because when you look just simply at the Bible on a literary scale, you will find that it weighs very heavy. It is a very well-written book and such as you would expect with something authored by the Holy Spirit. It executes the story perfectly. What is of great interest is the way that the situation is about to be reversed. Haman, Xerxes are absolutely ignorant of what is happening here. Part of that, a very small part, mind you, but a part of that is just simply what they are doing. This is Persia. This is a time in which a banquet was not just about a meal. A banquet was an event. In South Asia, where we have taken mission trips, meals are events. They will last a good while. You just do not eat and run. You don't just eat, pay your tip, leave. It is something that you experience. And such was the case with this banquet. You will notice... On verse 2, the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast. This was a long, drawn-out event. And what was about to happen is only known to three people at this time. One, Esther. Number two, Mordecai. And number three, the reader. We can sense that something is about to happen. We see the climax. We are almost at the very crest of the hill. Now, what's interesting is that Xerxes still thinks that, that uh, Queen Esther is just at the heart of her, she's a woman. And a woman just loves material things. If I were to update and, 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 and use 21st century 
American conversation between Xerxes and Queen Esther, it would say something like, rather than half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. No, I'll buy you as many pairs of shoes as you would like. In other words, Xerxes was thinking, okay, Esther is wanting something material. You and I have just read the material is nowhere near on her radar screen. There are two big things happening here that she brings about. First of all, is that her concern, her primary concern is the same as the Lord's people. Not just any people, His people. That is her first, her absolute first concern. Notice also she had quite a calm demeanor through all of this. Now, many of you may be like me in those difficult conversations, in times when there seems to be a contentious or confrontational time. You know what happens. Heart beats a little quicker. Temperature elevates. Your mouth gets dry. You lose your train of thought. According to this text, Esther was having none of that. She, re- she remained cool, calm and collected the entire time. But let us not forget, she may, she may have been just that wise on her own. And I, indeed, I believe she was. But let's also remember that she prepared spiritually for this. Remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the importance of the spiritual disciplines to prepare you for the times when you may not easily or readily see God moving. Her time of spiritual preparation, I believe, uh, is really reflecting itself right here. The delays that she's giving here, or you would call it uh, the perceived delays. She had a feast. She said, okay, I'll tell you at the next feast that we will do. Now, this feast is kind of extenuating uh, itself. And and this, this delay functions in a way as to what it does. It, it, and you got to understand the culture here. In this context, the reason why a banquet or a meal like this was an event was because it had social implications. It, it had impact on social relationships. You know how you, you've done this before and maybe you've not even known it. How many of you have ever, especially ladies, how many of you ever had some possibly negative news, but you waited to tell your husband until after he had supper? Or maybe as a child, you were in trouble and you had that report card underneath the table and your knees were shaking. I've been there. I've done that. I waited until supper time was over. I wanted mom and daddy full. They're nice and happy. And there's my report card. We know what that's like. That's, that's what Esther, she was preparing Xerxes for the news. She, she wasn't necessarily preparing Haman. She just wanted his presence. More than anything. What is interesting is that Esther explains the actions of Haman using the exact same words that he used in the edict of chapter 3, verse 13. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. In other words, she painted a pure picture of what was happening. She indicated to, to, to Xerxes, listen, this, this was the edict. This is what was told is going to happen to us. Then what's interesting, I mentioned there's two things on her mind. First of all was the people. 
there was something else on her mind that indicates her, her prowess and wisdom, I believe, as a leader, as an executive leader. Her mind was also on finances. Look at the verse down here in verse 4. She said, listen, king. Now, I'm kind of paraphrasing. She said, listen, king, had we just been merely sold as slaves, I'd have kept my mouth shut. Why? We can only speculate. I would actually suggest that, well, Esther knows about slavery and her people. That's no big thing. They've been there, done that. They bought the T-shirt on slavery. Slavery was different than annihilation. But notice how she contextualizes the argument. She said, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have not have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss. What kind of loss is she talking about? A financial loss. In other words, she was reminding the king that, listen, dude, you took 10,000 talents of silver for our head. But had you employed us in indentured servitude for the Persian kingdom, you'd have gotten more money that way because of our productivity and our, our work ethic and what we would have produced for you. Kind of interesting, huh? I think this is extreme wisdom because it's showing, at least on behalf of, of, of Queen Esther here, what's happening in her thinking of, okay, if I were in the king's shoes, what would I be concerned with? All right, I'm going to name the two arguments, Esther, maybe. I'm going to name the two arguments that, that the king would be most concerned with. A huge population of the people of which... Ethnically, the queen is associated and is. But number two, I'm going to think about the economic fallout of our annihilation. Verse 5, verse 6 is the logical conclusion. Xerxes says, who was it? Who has plotted to do this? It's this wicked Haman. And of course, Haman... Is terrified. Why? Because of what happens in verse 7. And the king, well, in addition to what is terrifying him with the revelation, look at what happens now in verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Why is that? Persian, as well as other Middle Eastern civilizations, had a practice that a king or whatever power you have there, when there was a sudden departure, it meant something. And in this case, it meant Haman knew his life was in serious danger or he will be seeing death very soon. It is as if myself or you sitting on a throne, something happens, we get angered and irritated to the point we just have to leave. You ever been that angry before? You couldn't speak the words. You could, you just had to, you had to leave in this situation, departing like he did meant Haman was about to die. Haman knew this. What happens next? It gets even more interesting. Middle of verse 7, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. 
as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence and in my own house? You mean this guy falling in such a way, and, and the text is um, uh, it's accurately telling what has happened, but Again, knowing the context means a lot. This was a guy so distraught, he's begging for his life, by the way, to the queen, who actually had no executive power to do anything at that point. She, she had no power or authority whatsoever. And the way that he fell upon her, and it, this is God moving. God is moving because we know that Xerxes comes in right at that moment. And he just heard, well, uh, Haman has planned and plotted to annihilate the Jews of which she is one. He's trying to, he's trying to knock her off first. Then what happens? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now this is, um, verse eight here, um, the text here in the Hebrew is not indicating, even if I understood this correctly, and I had to spend some time studying this, even as I understand, it's not the words that he just spoke. It was the word of condemnation. It's not necessarily recorded, but it was a, 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 a commanding condemnation executive word that commanded the uh, uh, eunuchs, Harbona being one of them, obviously, to come and to be solicited and to take away Haman. In other words, the king, he said, you know, hey, you mean to tell me, Haman, you're going to do this in my presence? And then a word that he has authority to speak, what have you, summon the people to come take Haman away. And what's going to happen to him? Well, Harbona, verse 9, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, by the way, there are some gallows that were made, King Xerxes that Haman had prepared for Mordecai. Now, this, this little dialogue here, um, wow, um, its value is, is amazing. Verse 9 and 10, verse 9 in particular. Harbona knows about the gallows. Now, this makes me wonder how many in this kingdom in, or at least in the city of Susa, knew about the gallows. I believe a lot of people knew about the gallows, perhaps. Maybe even the king hadn't even heard about it yet, but when you build gallows 75 feet high, it's going to be noticed by a lot of people. Harbona says that, by the way, the gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai, by the way, king, Mordecai was the guy that saved your neck. That's what the text says. Look at verse 9. Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king. <laughs> is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. Now we've been through and been down that road. We know what that procedure looked like. It was very gruesome, ugly, and, and, and not pretty whatsoever. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Here's a trick question. Are we out of the woods yet? 
No. Why are we not out of the woods yet? Thank you. We still have a Persian law on the books for the Jews to still be killed and annihilated. Yes, we, we may want to do an early you know, celebration because Haman's dead, but we better hold our horses. There's still a law on the books. And we've got to figure out what to do about that. Well, we're going to worry about that next week, but we're almost there. We're almost there. So it's quite, quite interesting, the irony here. Haman, who was so upset because a Jew wouldn't bow at his feet, bowed quickly at the feet of a Jew. That's what done him in. Haman only cared for steamrolling his agenda and using whatever he could to make it so. I believe, personally, Haman had no concern for Xerxes. He could care less about a Persian empire. He did what he did. He leveraged what he could leverage because he hated Israel. It was once asked of Spurgeon, uh, excuse me, Martin Luther. Dr. Luther, can you defend the Bible? He said, I can prove the Bible and the existence of God. I believe it was a question. I can prove the existence of God and the Bible in just two words. The Jews. The Jews. But I began this study tonight by telling you that the Lord rewards faithfulness, right? How do we see that working in this chapter? Let me, let me give you some things to think about that we see illustrated here regarding the Lord rewarding faithfulness. Number one, we are to be faithful even when we are the victim. Sometimes we play the victim when we're not. Sometimes we may be a legitimate victim. Being a legitimate victim or not, we must be first faithful to the Lord and His Word before anything else. If we do not, we'll run into a big problem. I'm going to talk about this Sunday, but I'm going to give you a sneak peek right here. When we play the victim, we trade stewardship. We'll trade stewardship. The word just left me. I apologize. It's just been one of those days. Oh, boy. What am I supposed to do when you're 41 years old and it happens, right? It happens. Maybe it is. You know, I was, um, I had a privilege of hearing renowned scholar John Phillips at a pastor's conference. And this was towards near the end of his life. And as he was speaking, he just got silent. And he had lost complete train of thought. Now, he was having mental issues. He was on that, you know, spectrum there. And, and uh, he just had to take a pause and. Eventually, he got it together, and the words came and things of that nature. So, at any event, 
when we play the victim, we will trade stewardship for entitlement. That's the word I was wanting to say. We think we are owed something. Now, the only thing Esther had going for her was knowing she was a covenant people with a covenant God. A covenant people with a covenant God transcends any ideology that we would have of entitlement. This was a covenant between people and God who were selected and chosen by God's grace only. So she knew what was at stake. This was not her glory. This was God's glory at stake. So she was going to be faithful to the promises of God and to the covenant of God, even when she was legitimately a victim. New Testament speaking, we are to be acting the same way. I will uh, turn your attention to first. You don't have to turn there, but I will read this text to you. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 through verse 25. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. King James uses a really interesting word called the froward. I think that's a really pretty word. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you are when, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Why, did, why is he writing all this? For the next argument here, this next paragraph. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in as, as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. By the way, that's not a verse that you quote in the hospital room. That's not what he's talking about. For you were straying like sheep. Now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's not much room for us to play the victim. And even if we are, what do we do? We stay true to the cause of God. Esther was doing just that. Number two. Be faithful because God will give you the words to say and the actions to perform. God gave Esther the words and he gave her wisdom and knowing how to proceed with not just one, but two banquets, the second lasting uh, the span of two days. And then knowing what to say at the proper time. Listen, there will be times now, now let, me, let me make sure you understand my context in, in what I'm speaking here. I mean to tell you 
that God will give you the words to say and the actions to perform when we are legitimately being persecuted for our faith. I am not talking about God giving you the words so that you can win an argument. Okay? I'm talking about when you find yourself being ridiculed for your faith. What what promises do we have? Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He will tell you. He will guide you. One of the things us Baptists, we're going to work on is really knowing and understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I can promise you He's living and active. You know why I know He's living and active? Because Jesus isn't here. Jesus said He's got to go away for the Holy Spirit to come. He's not here. We know we've got the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is what draws people to men, to salvation. In John 3, and he will give us the words to say. Let me give you a real life illustration. You are probably not like me. I'm not a renowned expert on every world religion. I know a few things about many of them, at least enough to articulate just a little bit. But I am not an expert nor do I ever claim to be. And so we had a knock on our door several months ago, and it was a Mormon couple. And they proceeded to give me some information from, from their church. And um, again, I, I, did, I, didn't put, I, I wasn't reading a book on Mormonism at the time. But I can tell you this. As they were speaking, I was praying. And the Lord gave me one word. To focus on. The word was authority. Because they started talking about. Mr. Smith. The renowned prophet. And I told them I said. I, you guys probably don't know this. Now my wife is standing there. She heard this whole conversation. I said guys you, you probably don't know this. But I am a prophet. And I'm telling you that he's wrong. No you can't be a prophet. Who says. Who told old Smith there that he could be a prophet? And by what evidence can you prove it? And I just began to deconstruct their erroneous teaching on the authority of the word of God. And they soon started tripping over the words and didn't know what to say, repeating themselves. I wish I could say that I was able to lead them to the Lord. That did not happen. But I do pray, and I challenge them. I said, guys, would you please read your Bible over again? Not the Book of Mormon. Read your Bible again. Just forget. And I told them, I said, just forget what even what I have said. And forget what, forget what your Mormon friends have told you. Read the Bible for yourself. And you come back to me. And we'll talk about it. Where would that come from? I just want to be faithful to the Lord, to be a faithful witness at that time. It's not always people knock on your door who need to be saved. 
And so when they do, you better take advantage of it. Don't turn them away. You talk to them. Number three, be faithful. God always knows how to perfectly time and execute his justice. Be faithful. God knows how to perfectly time and execute his justice. We don't always we don't uh, we don't always know how he'll do that. And you and I have have seen many terrible things and tragic things, I'm sure, in our lifetimes of good people, godly people suffering and the wicked prosper. But that's the same confession that even David made in the Psalms. I'm going to point you to two of David's Psalms that I I believe speak kind of mightily and I'm going to kind of shroud my comments intentionally because I just want you to think about something. Psalm 22. Maybe you have echoed words similar to this. Verse 1. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And it gets worse. And it gets worse. The night gets darker. And you say, just like David in verse 11, God, be not far from me. Trouble is near. There is no one to help. God, what are, what are you doing? Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Have you ever been so grief stricken? Have you ever been so anxious? Have you ever been through such torment? Or these words would apply to you. I bet you there has been a time. But we must trust the Lord. We must trust the Lord when we don't know what's happening. We must trust the Lord when our wisdom fails us. We must trust the Lord when we fail ourselves and one another. Unintentionally and unwantingly. We must still trust the Lord. Why? Because just as soon as Psalm 22 ends, Psalm 23 begins. The Lord is my shepherd. What in the world happened between the end of chapter 22 and the beginning of chapter 3? Lord only knows. I don't know. But David knew. David knew that if he held on, and if he remained faithful to the Lord, the Lord would reward him and be faithful unto him. He is his shepherd. That's what Esther was doing the entire time. Now, here's, here's guys, where it kind of rubber meets the road for us. She was originally, or, or initially, I should say, I, I think very timid. 
I mean, it was Mordecai that had to prompt her to do something. You remember, she dismissed his grief at the beginning. You remember? She, she, she sent one of her units, go send him a change of clothes. Tell him it'll be all right. She had no idea what she was talking about. Until she got word from Mordecai, queen, niece, you're telling me to dismiss my mourning, but this is what's happening. You, me, and our people are about to be destroyed. Here's the piece of paper that proves it. What do I do? Esther says. Or, I'm sorry, back out. I can't go before the king. I, I, I could be killed. Mordecai's reply, you know it. Esther 4.14. Who knows that for such a time as this, relief and deliverance may come from somewhere, but Esther, you're here right now. Is that a word for the church today or not? We are here right now. Look at the difference that we can make. That's why I cannot wait for you to see these videos. I'm telling you, I, I, have, I have never been more excited, especially about the North American Mission Board and what they're doing to impact metropolitan cities. And, and each one of the videos I'm showing to you is an amazing, miraculous even, story of what God is doing in the cities. And we are here for such a time as this. And you remember what happened, right? That was the point in the story where Mordecai no longer instructed Esther. Esther instructed Mordecai. She told him what to do. She prepared herself spiritually. And then, boom, we've got these banquets. Boom, we've got the confession of Haman. And, boom, we've got her revealing herself as a Jew, about to be annihilated, killed, and executed. This was not so much the right words and the right time, per se, that she had control over. This is a story of the right execution of time and justice on behalf of God. And I'm telling you, do not fret, do not be afraid of all the injustice that you are seeing in this world. God is a perfect judge. And he will render justice according to his holy and righteous character. We need not worry about that. But they're not out of the woods yet. You've got a law on the books. Sealed with the signet ring of King Xerxes himself. Mordecai, Esther, and all the other Jews are still in a pickle. Next Wednesday night, we'll see what happens, okay? Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.